Would you like to uh, read the thing for us? Sure. Cherkru Ra, formerly known as Peel Island, is a small reef-fringed island in Moreton Bay, off the coast of the Australian state of Queensland. Nowadays, it's a picnic spot, a place for Queenslanders to visit by boat or for a hike or perhaps an overnight camping trip. As a national park, the rules are strict. Trash must be packed out, dogs are not allowed, and hikers are discouraged from entering the old complex of timber huts near Horseshoe Bay. And honestly, why would they want to? The buildings are tiny, just large enough for a person to stretch out on the floor. Their tin roofs are falling in, and the railings of their verandas are crumbling. They've been stripped of everything worth taking, although a few still have shreds of furnishings. A chair with no seat, an ancient Primus stove, a pile of rusting clothes hangers in the corner. There's a long-abandoned look to the place, arranged as it is along an overgrown road and gardens long since left to the weather. Ninety years ago, however, little Chirkura was home to a hundred people. Some were cooks and orderlies, or nursing students assigned to a particularly grim course of studies. One or two were doctors, bent on curing as many of the patients as possible, and trying to make the rest of the island's residents comfortable as they suffered through the worst symptoms of their disease. Leprosy. The patients came from all walks of life, and represented a cross-section of Queenslanders. Aboriginal Australians from across the state, South Sea Islanders, and Chinese and European immigrants who had come in search of a better life and gotten sick instead. Before there was a cure, or even hope of one, this was where the government had chosen to isolate them, in a purpose-built community built on a shoestring budget far out in Moreton Bay. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the Peel Island Lazarette. Thank you, Craig. Nice job. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, head bacteria analyst here at Relative Disasters Tropical Medicine Services. And I'm her brother, Greg, Hansen's disease historian here at Relative Disasters Public Archives. Thank you so much for that terrifying story, Greg. I love an abandoned hospital of any kind, and uh, uh, an abandoned yeah. leper colony is extra terrifying. It's <laughs> yeah, it is my jam, but it's also very scary. <laughs> yeah, I I can't imagine anybody having a good time in a place. You'd like be this. surprised. We're going to get into it. Our okay. main source for this episode is Peter Ludlow's Peel Island: Paradise or Prison. That's the 1999 edition, so it's a little bit outdated. Uh, there's okay. also a whole lot of more modern tidbits picked up from the Queensland State Libraries and Friends of Peel Island's websites. A uh, okay. special thank you also to our listener, Chris, who suggested this topic by email. We get some truly inspired suggestions from email, so if you ever come across anything you think we should cover, drop us a line either there or on Instagram. All right, today we're talking about not in event disaster like we usually do but a disaster of a place or i guess you might consider it a one long event like 1907 to okay. 1959 that yeah. takes place on a very pretty very small little island off the coast of queensland australia 
Today we're talking about the story of the Peel Island Lazarette, the leper colony that served, if that's the right word, uh, people yeah. living in Queensland who had been diagnosed with Hansen's disease or leprosy. The uh, star of our episode <laughs> is a little bacteria that causes the disease known as leprosy. Yep. This bacteria has been with us for a very long time. They've actually found it yeah. in Egyptian mummies dating back to 5000 BCE, which blows my mind. It's it's another great reason not to dig up mummies. Or eat them. Or eat them, yes. Did you know? Don't consume mummies. <laughs> Did you know people thought that eating mummies was healthy in uh, like 1700s yeah. England? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, there, there were like ground up mummy bits that people would eat and then everyone would get sick and they'd wonder why. Uh, symptoms of infection with this bacteria include a wide range between the annoying and the debilitating. It can also kind yeah. of like be at rest in your body for up to 20 years. Oh my so God. So it's really what? difficult to figure out where you got it from. If it's not an okay. obvious case, like you live with your dad and your dad has leprosy. Sure. All right. So on the mild end of symptoms, we have numb patches on your skin and fatigue. Frankly, I have dealt with both of those over the course of my life. Yep. I will be paranoid about them forevermore. Yep. Uh, on the more serious end, we've got nerve damage, paralysis, blindness, and tissue loss. So the symptom most associated with leprosy is deformity of facial features, fingers and toes. Yeah. And that is caused by the immune system reacting to the infection by eating up your own tissue and cartilage. Leprosy causes, you know, this kind of debilitating deformity and pain it is not fatal on its own. Right. Uh, it can do that thing where it eats away at your body for years and years. Uh, it can also do a lot of damage on your kidneys. Yep. But it doesn't actually kill you. Yeah. Hansen's disease has been studied pretty enthusiastically for hundreds of years. So we do know a lot about how it's passed between humans and other humans and humans and animals. You can yep. catch it from chimpanzees, red squirrels, and armadillos. Those are all popular house pets. Uh, if you live with yeah. one, please have him or her tested. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised by the armadillo thing, but I, I guess it makes sense. I mean, you know, I like to have six or seven armadillos around the house just because they're so friendly and people love them. But they're they're movable throw pillows, is what they are. They they're they're very very kind little animals, and you know, if you ever need a hole dug, they're right there. Right. Uh, most people, however, catch it from other people. It's yeah. actually pretty difficult to catch. It's passed through nose and mouth droplets, like a lot of viruses. Okay. So if an infected person sneezes on you, it's possible to inhale that bacteria and get it into your system. However, it's not a particularly robust bacteria. Like they'd have to sneeze on you a lot and you'd have to do a lot of inhaling to actually get an infection going. Uh, the other thing about leprosy is that something like 95% of us are completely immune. So if we can inhale the bacteria, what? it'll get into our system, and our immune system will just knock it out. We'll never develop that kind of debilitating infection. Okay, that I didn't know. I always, th like, leprosy has such a, a, uh, a reputation as being like, oh, it gets into your system and then it like your arms fall off it sure does know? yeah you're not kidding uh lepers used to have to carry bells around to warn people so that they could like socially distance before that was a thing communities throughout history have historically been terrified of catching leprosy yeah 
I am so comforted when I read things like 95% of us are immune to <laughs> leprosy. Yeah. That being said, as we mentioned, leprosy is a disease that evokes a lot of fear. So yeah. for the past couple thousand years, like way back into history, there are records of people who are afflicted, not necessarily with the bacteria, but with the visible symptoms. Uh, those people have been isolated, deeply stigmatized, uh, and in many cases interned with other sufferers in colonies. And those colonies tended to be isolated and completely shunned by outside society. You know, like, like you do with people that need medical attention. Right. Famously, the best thing, Famously. the best thing you can best do for a sick do. person is yeah. board them up with a bunch of other sick people, preferably on an island, and then just yeah. forget about them. Yeah. Didn't Hawaii have some of these? Hawaii colonies? had one of the busiest, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, sure. colonies that served people from all over the South Pacific, and something like 8,000 people passed through there. The other big one is Carville in Louisiana. We're going to talk about those okay. briefly, but they are like whole okay. communities unto themselves. Okay, so if you're a member of the 5% that can catch it and develop symptoms, Hansen's disease is also pretty treatable, and it has been since 1915 when the brilliant African-American chemist Alice Agnes Ball invented, at the age of 23, mind you, this right. therapy that used the oil of the Chalmugra nut to alleviate symptoms. That sounds made up, but I swear it's not. It's something that's been in Ayurvedic medicine for a long time. And okay. Alice Ball figured out how to turn it into an injectable. Jeez. She was a super brilliant chemist. Uh, so let's raise a glass to Alice Ball and the Ball Method, because this 1915 treatment that she came up with is the first treatment in recorded history that actually put leprosy into remission. So it actually improved people's lives to the point where leprosy was no longer an automatic expulsion from your home, your work, your family, from okay. your life. Uh, if Alice Ball had lived past the age of 24, she no doubt would have come up with a cure for leprosy, but unfortunately she did not. It wasn't until the 1940s when doctors at Carville, which is that leper colony in Louisiana in the US, Again, serving yep. thousands and thousands of patients. Yeah. Uh, those doctors were able to develop a treatment using an injection of a sulfone drug called Promin. Again, this is way over my layperson's head. Um, <laughs> okay. But it does something to kick the bacteria out. Uh, later, okay. they came up with a heavy-duty antibiotic pill called Dapsone. These were both drugs that were developed to treat tuberculosis. Uh, the tuberculosis bacterium and the leprosy bacterium is very close. So they oh, kind of okay. have these reciprocal treatments. Uh, those both work to kill the leprosy bacterium and clear the infection. So in 1945, these doctors were the first ones to see their, pati to see their patients completely cured of leprosy and be able to go back out into the world. That's, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, today, if you are diagnosed with leprosy, you will get put on a three-drug cocktail immediately upon diagnosis. And in most of the world where there's access to those medicines, again, we do not have universal access to these medicines, right. uh, patients will recover. Sure. So if you have all of human history to choose when to catch a leprosy, any time in the last 70 <laughs> years would be best. I cannot okay. overemphasize how recent this advance is, or how many incredibly yeah. smart and talented people worked for decades on developing and testing these medicines and protocols. 
and how lucky we are to have them. You know, if you think about yeah. 95% of the world being immune to leprosy, that's still millions yeah. of people who are vulnerable are to catching it. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like I've given you a good overview of leprosy? Absolutely. Great. So let's pack our suitcases for 19th century Queensland, Australia. Doesn't uh-huh. that sound fun? I love Australia, but I know how uh, if you were a person afflicted with leprosy, you were going to be treated. Right. Uh, you were, you know, it's interesting because they do actually have public health policies that kind of yeah. Oh, yeah. intend to treat these kind of diseases. <laughs> it's, it's. It's the intent it's, <laughs> that we we celebrate here, not not the not the final result or the implicate the uh, oh what's the word I'm looking application of that intent, right. but but the intent, yes. So the beginning of our story. This is the time when immigrants are just pouring into the state, which of oh, course yeah. is yeah. already inhabited by half a million Aboriginal Australians belonging to hundreds of nations, speaking ninety different languages incredibly rich and diverse culture, uh, failing to see any problems yeah. with occupying an already, an already occupied island. Captain James Cook well, claims the whole continent for England in 1770. Oh, to have the confidence of Captain James Cook. By 1830, England saw a great opportunity to uh, send criminals. Yeah. I mean, really, this whole kind of policy and idea springs from the idea of putting yeah. your undesirables in a different place. <laughs> so, yep. so we're really it's, it's on trend very, here. It's very on brand for, the, uh, for this era of the British Empire. Yes. Right. Uh, so the first penal colonies in Queensland are built around Moreton Bay, where the city of Brisbane is today. Yep. Uh, our first groups of immigrants are Irish and English convicts. They are followed eventually by non-convict English people as well as Scots and the Germans also are a big influx. Sure. Yeah, it's about that right time. So the first people who are coming in are white Europeans. Yep. All right. In the ninth sorry, in the eighteen fifties and sixties, gold is discovered inland. And <laughs> even more people, particularly Chinese miners, join yep. the stream of immigrants flooding into Queensland. These yeah. miners are generally working on behalf of wealthy landowners in China, yeah. and their living conditions, uh, as you can imagine, range from awful to horrific. One of the big signifiers of leprosy outbreaks is unsanitary water. Yes. So, yep. not looking good here. No. Dysentery, cholera, and leprosy. We'll get into all the diseases, but uh, I, I have want a whole to. smorgasbord <laughs> waiting for you here. No! Okay. In the 1880s, a practice called blackbirding begins bringing in hundreds of thousands of Pacific Islanders into Queensland as it's described as indentured agricultural labor. Yeah. But I need to take a little sidebar here. Have you heard of blackbirding? I have heard of blackbirding. Let's get into the history. I had not. Uh, blackbirding has a nice countryside ring to it. Yeah, it sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. It refers to the procurement and transport of foreign labor involving coercion or outright kidnapping yes. of people living all over the South Pacific. Yeah. If you read about it in some places, it seems like a clever human resources strategy. <laughs> Other places describe it as human trafficking. That's what it is. is. Yeah. That's what it is. Yes. Blackbirding is human trafficking into... I mean, I, I guess indentured servitude is the nicest way you could 
put it. it it's also, you know, <laughs> slavery. But what are you going to do? So the nicest thing I can say is that it does not meet the legal definition of slavery as it, it was not. being practiced in our continent. Like we have no leg to stand on here. No, our no, our no, ancestors no. were doing equally horrible things to oh, yes. indigenous and kidnapped people. Yep. Uh it was just real bad, though. It, the blackbirding ships ran a trade route all over the South Pacific and brought this kind of human trafficking to all yeah. kinds of European agricultural concerns, from sugar plantations to pearl farming. Yeah, yeah. Their descendants prefer the term South Sea Islanders, so that's what we're going to use. Sounds good. And that is our third group of diverse Queensland immigrants. Yeah. Given that all these new immigrants to Queensland are coming together from literally all ends of the earth to live yeah. in mostly substandard, unsanitary housing in a humid tropical climate, you well, will not be shocked. Yeah, that, that's, that's a recipe for a lot of disease. <laughs> a lot of disease. I made a list. Do you want to hear it? No, but hit me. There are documented plague outbreaks of typhus, whooping cough, influenza, smallpox, and dengue fever all in okay. the last half of the 19th century. That's it? I'm actually a little surprised. No, those are the big ones. There's much more. I, I was going to say, hold on. <laughs> but we're going to be here for a while if I uh, go through them all. Okay. All right. Do you want just, me to? Just, nope. Just assume every bad thing. <laughs> they also have chicken pox. Okay. Oh. Okay. So people living in Queensland are eventually like, look, we can't stop importing all these sick people. Yeah. Uh, so at first, these ships are just instructed to set anchor in the bay and get a health inspection from a local public health official. <laughs> right? They're just going to send some dude aboard and yeah, that's a great check everybody's temperature. Yep. <laughs> see yeah. if you have any dead people. Yep. That's fantastic. If they find that sickness is present... The ship has to quarantine until all the sick people are dead or recovered, and the ship has been cleaned. That... You can imagine, even though these diseases take a lot, are a lot quicker than leprosy, They t it takes a while for one disease to get through yeah. a whole ship full of people. Yeah. Uh, this also means that you have a local doctor running out to inspect sick patients on board ships, and then he's coming back and yep. delivering babies and treating yep. sore throats. Maybe yep. he washes his hands, but you know, we're pretty we're pretty new in germ theory, so Yep. Oh, I hate every part of this. Keep going. <laughs> Don't worry, it's gonna get so much better. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you started with like the history of leprosy so we can be like, Oh yes, but nowadays there's Yeah, a leprosy's cure. kind of a oh, what do you call it? Kind of a feel good story. In, in the larger context. <laughs> in the larger context, sure. Yeah. Disease. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So another big problem, just to add to that, is supplies. Some ships simply can't afford to stock enough drinking water and food for an extra two or three weeks after sure. the already, you know, months-long voyage. So in the 1860s, with immigration booming, the state government of Queensland realizes they need a better system. <laughs> Right? They're like, we can't keep importing sick people. It's just not Golly, for fellows, us. this isn't working. Uh, because they are blessed with a ton of islands, they settle on just using islands as quarantine stations. Now, this, okay. the intention here is to allow a true quarantine. So they have a dedicated medical staff, fresh supplies, the ability to move sick people off the ship and away from the healthy people. Yep. Uh, and if you're squeamish about burying your loved ones at sea after watching them die of cholera... There's even a cemetery. Okay. How nice okay. is that? It's a big improvement, I think. Yeah. I, once again, 
their heart was in the right place. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of that in this episode. Just the execution uh, leaves leaves a little to be desired, but their heart Trying was in some the different right solutions. Place. We had a lot of creative thinkers doing their there best. We there we go. As... <laughs> so we've got cute little uninhabited Peel Island, which has fresh water and a protected harbor. Okay. It was identified as a good spot for a quarantine camp, and a full station was built on the southeast corner in 1874. Okay. You're thinking that the state government paid to have it built. That is not the case. Okay. This is going to come up again. <laughs> was the, this a privately run thing? <laughs> the Victorian government of Queensland. Yeah. The Victorian era government of Queensland, not the state of Victoria. Right. I was um, going to say, hold on. <laughs> they had a lot of good ideas. They had a lot of trouble funding things. Okay. So what they worked out was to have the healthy passengers build buildings and do all kinds of other stuff on the island, like help out the doctors. Okay. While the sick people were either dying or getting better. Okay. The spin that the media puts on this is terrific. I'm going to read you a quote. Okay, here we go. <laughs> They're talking about the development on Peel Island. Quote, At present, there are about 10 or 12 acres of land cleared, and some attempt has been made at cultivation and establishment by way of well-made walks and flower borders in front of the buildings between them and the bay. A praiseworthy attempt at gardening has also been made by someone, but the result so far has been decidedly discouraging, judging from the melancholy appearance of the crop at the time of our visit. It speaks well for the zeal, energy, and practical good sense of the superintendent of Dunwich, uh -huh. this 10 or 12 acres of cleared land. It never cost the government a sixpence, either directly or indirectly, but it was all accomplished by the young and healthy men belonging to the various immigrant ships which had been quarantined, with such help is. and supervision as could be rendered by the superintendent and his assistant, in addition to the performance of their routine duties at Dunwich. Yeah, it's amazing when you can get built for free when you don't pay your laborers. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's astonishing how much contractors cost when you do things properly. Yeah. And then you've got yeah. the insurance. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they have all these healthy passengers just being contractors. Uh, sure. And, but they also do have the sick people being cared for in the quarantine hospital. And it appears like this worked for a long time, both in the sense of slowing the introduction of new diseases in Queensland and allowing sick patients to isolate and recover. We all appreciate that. Okay, towards the end of the century, the more easily communicable public health issues like smallpox and cholera are, you know, starting to come under control thanks to advances in medicine and also this more strict quarantine system. Okay. This is when the government starts obsessing over leprosy. And it's really <laughs> unclear why. The okay. cases are never out of control. Um, it's just something that, you know, historically leprosy just really bothers people on a, a level that many other diseases don't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the concern and attention that the government gives the issue far outweighs the actual hazard to the public health. In 1892, they draft up a leprosy act and it allows the government to designate quarantine and treatment facilities for people diagnosed with leprosy. It also gives the government the absolute power to detain and isolate anyone who tests positive for the leprosy bacteria. Okay. So Hansen has already like come and gone. He's already discovered how to identify and isolate the bacteria in a blood sample. 
So there is a definitive test for leprosy. You don't have to wait for the symptoms to appear. But this legislation just creeps me out on yeah. a deep level. See, there's, there's sensible measures to protect the public from a public health risk. Right. And then there's indefinite imprisonment. Right. And there's no second opinion. There's no like yeah. period of house arrest. Once you're diagnosed, you were just like... You shipped off to the island. Yeah, literally. You were put on a train, taken to Moreton Bay. And in, in a lot of cases, they would put you in a dinghy and <laughs> tie the dinghy to a bigger boat and sail the bigger boat out to Peel Island. Okay. Okay. Uh, I watched one really horrifying piece of oral history where a young mother was complaining about fatigue. Uh, she went to see a tropical, or sorry, her husband took her to see a tropical medicine specialist. Yeah. He diagnosed her with Hansen's disease. He didn't tell her. He told her husband. She uh -oh. didn't get told. They told her they wanted to take her away for more testing. It wasn't until she got to the island that she was told she was going to have to stay there forever. Two little kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. She had told them that she was going to be back the next day. She didn't see them again until they were in their 20s. That's what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. And, and did she actually have a diagnosis? She had what sounded like a mild case. So the policy was, okay, so rarely leprosy can go into remission on its own. The policy yeah. was if you had 12 negative tests in a row, you could go home. Okay. So you could have literally like several years of negative tests, but until you get to number 12, you're stuck there. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah. It's pretty awful. Uh, the government ends up designating five of the islands off the coast of Queensland as leper colonies. Four okay. of these are added onto existing facilities or consist of repurposed buildings. But on Peel Island, the government sees a chance to build something completely fresh. Okay. So they designed Australia's first purpose-built lazarette, this tidy little complex. It's far away from the old quarantine station, which is abandoned by the time the lazarette opens. Okay. They do something really interesting here. They design it to serve both white Australians and people of color, by which they mean anyone not white. Yeah. So on Peel Island, these would be mainly people of Chinese, uh, Aboriginal, and South Sea Island descent. Yeah. Not that they would be treated the same, of course, but they'd be in the same spot. Okay. Well, <laughs> baby steps. This becomes less of even a baby step than you think. Okay. Uh, but this time, they're actually going to pay for contractors. So construction huh? is going great until there is an unexpected leprosy transmission case on the nearby Dunwich Benevolent Asylum, which had kind of a early isolation colony for people suffering from leprosy. Okay. And this whole group gets moved over into this kind of half-finished construction site about a year earlier than planned. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's less than ideal. Guess who gets to build the rest of the complex? Uh, the, the people <laughs> afflicted with leprosy. You got it. Hey! 20 points. Uh, from the beginning, there is a huge racial disparity from between the patients in Peel Island Lazarette. This is by design. So sure. It's yep. not a bug. It's a feature. Yep. yep. The first and most obvious demarcation is that the compound is separated between white people and non-white people, and then again by gender. <laughs> So I read okay. a really fascinating paper about the architecture in this complex. 
Everybody is given a cabin to themselves, which sounds like the beginning of a kind of separate but equal policy. Well. It's separate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But the architecture really varies. So white women have a kitchen in their hut. They have a little porch. Okay. White men have no kitchen because we all know men don't cook. Right, right. Uh, Yes, absolutely. But they do get a veranda. Oh, in the compound for people of color, and please remember, we're talking about multiple cultures, languages, yep. foods, yep. multiple kinds of people all lumped together. Yep. So these huts are the same footprint as the ones in the white half of the compound, but they have lower ceilings and two or three people per per hut. And on the white side, it was one person per it hut, It was right? strictly one person per hut, yeah. Interesting. Uh, is, is, is the rationale that... Anyone who isn't white can't possibly, like, get more infected? Like, what? Or is it just, let's save some money and lump people together? It's really hard to tell because I couldn't find the public history papers. Sorry, the public history records for the funding and the way it was distributed. Okay. Um, But the research papers that I read suggested that it was just a disparity of funding. Sure. So they were, they had a certain amount to spend on each hut in one half of the complex and then they had a different amount of money to spend on the other half what did they do next i mean once all these buildings were put up oh they weren't put up they were (laughs) they were started (laughs) oh right right so the wooden huts in the section of the camp for white people people of european descent were up on these little stilts um like stumps maybe two or three feet high this, I guess, is typical in that part of Australia. It's to keep snakes and floods yeah. out of your house. Exactly, yeah. The ones in the other part of the compound were corrugated iron, thatched roof. They were set directly on the ground with a dirt floor, so snakes... Oh, come on! <laughs> uh, they were also, like, incredibly hot in the summer and cold in the winter, to the point where people yeah. refused to use them to sleep in. They would just yeah. build a fire and sleep outside. Because that would actually be warmer, yes. Jeez. Uh, for further context, the cost difference was 55 pounds, or was it dollars? Whatever they were using back then. I think they go from pounds to dollars, but I'm not sure when that happened. When that changeover happened. Okay. Send me an email. Uh, the cost difference was 55 pounds to build a white patient's hut versus three pounds for a hut that would house three uh, patients of color. That's just staggering. Yep. You can see similar disparities in the separate dining facilities and the food provided for each group. They are both issued. I mean, there's nothing to eat on Peel sure. Island, so they're yep. dependent on rations from the mainland. Yep. The food that's designated for each group is completely different in uh, so freshness, quality, yeah, and amount. Yeah. Yep. That that makes perfect perfect sense. Um, here's my question. Sure. D- do these huts? have toileting facilities or did they have to have communal bathrooms no because there's no indoor plumbing there's no running water right right uh so so everybody has an outhouse okay and they were i think they were blocks for each part of the compound okay it wasn't like everybody had a little outhouse out back of their right yeah single person hut yeah it's not great uh not super great no. alcohol is another big issue uh, yeah one would imagine <laughs> so the white patients are allowed to drink alcohol and they're rationed specific amounts of alcohol <laughs> Jeez. 
Uh, at its most generous, the government was spending a thousand pounds per year on each white patient, or maybe it's dollars. Okay. Uh, per year on each white patient, and a okay. hundred pounds or dollars per year on each patient who was not white. So my overall point here is that each patient <laughs> who is being confined against their will, possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah. on Peel Island. Each patient is a human being with the same diagnosis. They need the yes. same care and treatment. Yep. And each patient has families and communities who love them and wanted them back. Yeah. You know, the disparity when you look at it from that kind of a point is pretty stark. Yeah. So from the day it opens until 1940, Peel Island is this like perfect little case study in what kind of problems you can expect when you use systemic racism to inform public health policy. It's just not a good idea. It's not. Interesting. <laughs> so, since you brought that up, did the other colonies, the, the other Lazarets out there on other islands, mm -hmm. were they not segregated like this? It's really hard to tell because there is not as much documentation and they open okay. and close kind of randomly. Okay. But Got it. So they'd example, be popping up and falling apart all over the place, but because the Peel Island one was purpose-built, right. this makes... Yeah, okay, I get it, I the, get it. The white people on Peel Island were not wealthy white people. If you nope. were a wealthy person, if you were a wealthy person who was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, you went into a private hospital and you were treated there. So, for example, on Phantom Island, which is right up the coast, I think okay. it's, it's fairly close. It's I don't know if it's the closest other colony, but... Uh, the colony there is attached to a lock hospital, which is a prison hospital for people with sexually transmitted diseases. Okay. So these other lazarets were, and also a lazaret is not necessarily a leper colony. It's a word for any kind of quarantine station. Right, right. So those kind of complexes served like a wide variety of problems. Okay. Not this just, one not just was leprosy. was built for leprosy. Right. Exactly. Okay. And it was intended to be kind of a model colony. Sure. In case they wanted to do this again somewhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a model home in a development. You too could have one in your state. Oh, okay. So the interesting thing is that there does seem to be quite a lot of mingling between groups within this complex, even though sure. everybody's physically separated. Uh, and some of the white patients really do not want to be quarantining with quote unquote black lepers. There's a big wow. letter to the editor in the 1930s where they're like, Aww. why? You got to have some sympathy because they're all sick. Like That's they're the all thing. suffering from this incurable debilitating disease. Yeah. But at the same time. Yeah. Uh, however, there is a shared church, so patients can worship together. There's okay. an integrated choir. Patients can sing together. Both groups are allowed to visit each other within the compounds until curfew. Uh, there's obviously, like, rules against sexual relationships and trading alcohol. Those rules are frequently ignored and never enforced that I could find. <laughs> And also there are sports that's, that's facilities. That's what we call an unenforceable law right there. Yeah, I mean, these people are just, like, jerked away from their lives and their families. Yeah. They don't really have access to anything fun to do. Like, I can't imagine anyone being too upset about sex and beer. 
Yeah. Which is why I'm not in charge of any lazarettes. Yes. <laughs> uh, there are also sports. So there is a cricket ground and a tennis court, and people fish together across racial lines. Okay. And as you might imagine from a group of 65 people with a pretty manageable illness and no jobs or family to structure their lives around, they also kind of hold entertainments for each other. Sure. So there are informal dance performances in the recreation hall, and the white recreational hall has a piano. I am going to take a quick sidebar for the piano story in Peter Ludlow's book, which I thought was fascinating. So the Freemasons donate a piano to the Lazarette in the 1930s, and a number of the patients become good players because, again, there is not much to do. Sure. One day, a radio station in Brisbane donates a new piano, and the white patients grab it to replace their old Freemasons piano. Okay. They donate their old one to the other side of the compound. (laughs) And then they realize that the new piano is not very good. So it's a charity they, piano. They, <laughs> it's not great. They enact the law of takesy backsies. Yep. So they march over to the other side of the compound. They demand it back. The non-white patients are like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a full-on fist fight, and the cheek of some people. <laughs> the white patients are stuck with their lousy radio station piano. I mean. That piano is still there, Greg. It has fallen apart. Nobody wanted this thing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, you might ask why the government wasn't providing pianos to both sections of the camp. I would not ask that, actually. So various budgets, as state governments come and go, they allocate more or less to the Lazarette, and it depends heavily on local charity groups like the Freemasons, the Salvation Army, and the Catholic Sisters of Mercy, who are trained as nurses and nursing assistants. Yes. They do have basic medical facilities um, to distribute the known treatments. And when it was first opened, they had a staff of cooks, housekeepers, orderlies, and nurses. So they knew that they would require a staff. They did not plan for the amount of turnover that happens. Uh, They also don't have a doctor. Um, uh, I'm sorry, what? No doctor. They have a visiting medical officer. Okay. They have no hospital and no laboratory. They have no electricity either. Uh, I think I've kind of beaten my point about unequal conditions into the ground, but yes, for everybody, conditions are pretty primitive. Yeah, okay. They finally get a permanent nurse in 1925, and they get a better kitchen in 1927. Ooh. Sometime in the 20s, they get access to the wireless, and everyone who can afford them starts running these little battery-powered radios. So they're able to pick up news and music from the mainland, which had to have been huge for this kind of isolated little community. Okay. In 1940, Peel Island is abruptly changed by the removal of the 50 non-white patients to the colony on Phantom Island. Uh, They had been suffering tremendous inequality on Peel Island, where conditions were still better than on Phantom, which again has that lock hospital. They take their piano with them. But the majority die of tuberculosis and kidney failure within the next few years. And by majority, I mean 40 of the 50 people are dead within five years. Jeez. Yep. This is when conditions on Peel Island are starting to improve. Okay. Uh, Up until the mid-1940s, they have this medical officer who, I can't tell if he's... 
just like a government employee or an actual doctor because he tries all these sketchball medical treatments. <laughs> okay. He started doing this treatment called injectable gold. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Which is exactly what it sounds like. No. <laughs> Coincidentally, this is exactly where people realize that injecting gold into your bloodstream will not only not cure leprosy, it will also ruin your kidneys. Who knew? Yeah. Um, every, okay. I mean, it sounds like it could work, right? No, no, there is no, 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 there's nothing. You might as well be giving them mercury. Listen, I have had that vodka with gold flakes in it and I have not died. I have no response to that. I've never thought of gold as being a toxic metal. It's not really toxic. The problem Thank is you. it also doesn't belong in your <laughs> bloodstream. I mean, my goodness. Well, there's a fine line between non-toxic and do not put this in your bloodstream. All right. Did this guy actually have a medical license or was this a, a, a gifted amateur here? <laughs> That's what I can't figure out. He's described as a medical officer and a superintendent of hospitals. Okay. But that doesn't mean he might, he went to medical school. No, it does not. It means he can sign papers. Well, and design treatment plans, Greg. Oh, right. Can't overlook that. And I do love that after all these like budget cuts and and like budget problems that they have, the treatment that they go with is injectable gold, which could not have been cheap. Uh, he also prescribes Chalmugra oil. This is what makes me think he was not a doctor because he doesn't prescribe the ball method injections. He described he prescribes it as a liquid dose to swallow, which is a really old fashioned way of taking. Yeah. The oil, it's much less effective at managing the symptoms, and it will make you super sick. Yeah. In 1946, Peel Island finally gets a resident doctor, Dr. Eric Reyes. I say okay. resident, but he actually lives on his boat. So he comes ashore every day and treats people <laughs> and then goes back to his boat in the evening. <laughs> All right. I, nah, I'm good with this. Uh, Dr. Reyes is a medical doctor. He went to medical school and graduated. He comes with penicillin. Oh my goodness, yeah. not gold? No, he he does not do gold <laughs> injection that we know of. That uh, we know of. Penicillin doesn't work on leprosy, but uh, I love the optimism of trying a modern medicine. Yeah. He also has new topical drugs for skin ulcers, which do work to alleviate one of the most painful symptoms. And he also knows about the ball method. So he knows about Alice Ball's injectable Chalmugra okay. oil. Okay. This is the first medicine that actually allows patients to go into remission to have those 12 negative tests and go home. So this is pretty huge. Good. In the late 1940s, Promen, one of those cell phone drugs from the U.S., becomes available. And by 1948, Dr. Reyes is seeing his first Peel Island patients be completely cured from leprosy. So they get to the point where the disease doesn't drop into remission, it's completely gone. The bacteria is completely gone from the blood. Okay. Which had to have been super exciting. You would think the government would be really happy. Uh, the thing about these cell phone <laughs> drugs is that you have to keep really close track of what the patient's blood and urine is like during the treatment. So okay. the way he described it was almost like chemotherapy. You have to get this constant IV for hours and hours and hours. Uh, it makes you really sick. Yeah. Um, but you do eventually kill the bacteria and pass it out of your system. Okay. But you need okay. to be monitored constantly to make sure that sure. you're not actually dying. Yeah. Dr. Yeah, they, Reyes. They, 
cannot keep a laboratory open on Peel Island for this work. So he's constantly dealing with transport issues and red tape over sending samples to the hospital in Brisbane. He's okay. also clashing with the medical supervisor right and left. Okay. I can't tell if it's the same guy with the gold injections, but I, I like to think I, it is. I think I, it has to be, right? You know those no, people sir. are only responding to the Proben because of their gold injections 20 yep. years ago. Yep. Uh, in 1949, Dr. Reyes quits his island, quits his job, and leaves yep. the island. He gets on his boat, uh, he sails away, he does not come back. You know what? He, he did his time. <laughs> so the few years when Dr. Reyes was in charge see a rapid improvement in life on the Lazarette. They're serving fewer patients, so resources aren't stretched quite as thin. Okay. Uh, they're able to get electricity, a movie theater, new buildings, more nurses, more qualified medical staff, and they're finally seeing people being discharged, which yeah. of course means even fewer patients. The okay. food improves, the alcohol ration is raised, Whoa. yay for beer. Uh, in 1950, they finally get a new doctor, and that's Morgan Gabriel. Okay. It is not Dr. Gabriel's ambition to run a lazarette because he's like 20 years old, he's fresh out of medical school, and he just got married. <laughs> okay. He's a baby doctor. However, yeah. he went to medical school on a bond from the government. Ah, which means they can tell him where to go. Exactly. So yep. the condition of the bond means that he's required to go where they want him to go. And once they find out that he's a teetotaler, yep. they're like, we have a position for you. <laughs> Come here, son. You're going to do great things. <laughs> uh, so he takes his wife of like two months. They immediately have two healthy, active little kids who are raised on the island. What that shows is that leprosy is not as easily communicable as people think. They've got sure. this doctor who knows everything about leprosy, and he thinks it's safe to raise his family there. I mean, that's huge for, that's true. for the public no, image. That's true. Uh, in the 1950s, Dr. Gabriel petitions the government relentlessly. He wants better food, better staff. Uh, he gets medical students to do residencies out there. He wants better lab services, and he wants more and better medicine. And in the meantime, his wife, who seems like one of those just completely unflappable 50s women, yep. <laughs> she's organizing craft nights and starting dances for the patients she's throwing all kinds of parties and they're celebrating holidays okay so cool Good uh for them. they're also a lot more lenient with visits so patients have been allowed to have visitors but very rarely and then it's on a strict schedule and they have to follow some pretty severe social distancing this time you're when dr gabriel is in charge you're allowed to have much longer visits you're allowed to hug your family and if you are a patient in remission, you're also allowed to take field trips off the island. So this is a huge change. Yeah, that's a big deal. By 1959, there are only 10 patients left on Peel Island. But then uh, the government immediately realizes that they have 60 staff members for 10, for 10 patients. People. And yeah. someone does the math and they're like, I just, we can't. Okay. Okay, so because of all these leaps and bounds, this is when the 1892 Leprosy Act finally goes away and Queensland starts closing the lazarettes. And to okay. the relief of the whole state, people who are diagnosed with leprosy are finally allowed to be treated in their home communities and continue leading a normal life. So they're, you know, working at their jobs, living with their families. They're just undergoing treatment at the same time. Okay. This means also that cases are way down. Yeah. 
So the last of the Peel Island patients dies in a hospital in Brisbane in 1981. When the lazarette closes, the remaining 10 patients are shifted over to, gosh, I forget the name of the hospital, but they built a dedicated ward in the hospital. Okay. Um, it's in the city of Brisbane. Those patients don't respond to treatment and they get older and older. And the last one passes away in 1981. Wow. The island okay. itself was abandoned. Nobody has lived there permanently since 1959. Most of the buildings have been allowed to kind of decay. Sure. It was used as a summer camp in the 80s. <laughs> what? For a Bible school. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine the horror movie? Um, it's now a nature preserve. And in 1993, it was also declared a cultural heritage site and put on the state heritage register which protects it from any per further development and allows the Parks Department to maintain the remaining structures. Okay. Uh, in 2007, it was officially renamed to its original Kwandamuka name, Tirkura, and declared a national park. As of 2011, it is jointly managed by the State of Queensland Park and Wildlife Services and the Kwandamuka Yulaburibi Aboriginal Corporation, as part of the Kwandamuka Estate, which is a huge swath of coastal land and water that includes Peel Island and a big chunk of coastal Brisbane. Okay. At Tirkrura, the Cultural Heritage Mission takes this kind of very practical and hands-on approach. Sure. So the rangers attached to the project work on things like trail maintenance, they learn firefighting, so they do controlled burns and fire prevention. Cool. They keep an eye on the health of the water, and they preserve the remains of the leper colony and quarantine buildings. So Queenslanders oh, okay. and Australians have evidence of how uh, some of yes. its most vulnerable citizens were treated well into the 20th century. Gotcha. And that yep. is the short and eventful life of the Peel Island Lazarette. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And we know you do. <laughs> why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. I am uh, agog with curiosity, Greg. What have you got for us? Next, uh, next episode, we're going to talk about a 14-pound sphere. Mm -hmm. measuring about three and a half inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. The outside of it is coated with nickel, and uh, the inside of it is made up of a plutonium-gallium alloy. Ooh, like a bonbon. This is the third fissile core for the original three atomic bombs. This is the one that never got dropped. I'm sorry, we just have one of those sitting around? Not anymore. Oh, we're going to talk about the third atomic core, originally known as Rufus, but then became known as the Demon Core. Oh, God. Why? Why do we have these things sitting around? All well, right. Like I Never said, mind. We, You'll tell me we don't it. have this one sitting around <laughs> anymore. <laughs> That's so ominous. 
All right. I uh, absolutely can't wait to find out more about this <laughs> horror bonbon. Demon uh, Core. <laughs> God, that sounds like a video game. It does. It really does. I can't wait to hear more about this. 